On this episode, used car dealers are at it again, and Porsche has a new mission. We introduce The People Have Spoken, where we break down the Instagram polls you reply to each week. Finally, we end with a moment in history, the story of the first cross-country drive in America. Don't forget to like, comment, rate, and subscribe wherever you're catching this podcast, and follow us on YouTube and Instagram for more content at 91octane. That is all letters, no numbers. Let's start the show. <laughs> Welcome to 91 Octane. I am John, and let's go right under the hood. Used car dealers and rolling back odometers have gone together like peanut butter and jelly since the invention of sliced bread, and it continues. A car dealer in the UK has admitted to selling more than 350,000 euros worth of clock cars. That is almost $400,000 worth of cars done illegally. The culprit by the name of Imran Garay, Garay, I'm going to say Gari, uh, has been given a two-year prison sentence. He admitted to altering the mileage on a total of 46 cars. But instead of serving time in prison, his sentence has been postponed for two years, and he's been ordered to do 100 hours of community service and attend a 15-day rehab program. I'm curious what a rehab program looks like for a shady used car dealer. Like, what does that entail? There isn't really a lot of information. Like, is it just a general crime rehab? Like, a scam rehab? Is it a specific, like, used car salesman rehab? I mean, how do you rehab rolling back odometers? I think that's just greed right so you need to rehab greedy used car salesmen i don't know i mean that sounds like it would be big business but i don't think it is so i'm very curious what this 15-day rehab program looks like sounds like it's probably a generic program but how he did it is they reduced the mileage on some cars by as much as eighty thousand miles and was able to sell the cars for around six thousand three hundred dollars extra on each sale so it was a significant amount of money that he was earning on these shady practices now it wasn't super easy he had to create fake mot certificates which are like sort of the uk equivalent of inspection certificates uh that we would have out here i know california doesn't have them new york does um that basically reported altered mileage um, so that they would then be registered as having lower mileage. And he would then sell these sketchy cars on like Auto Trader or Copart auctions using a fake name, hoping not to get caught. But I mean, eventually, I think if you do this enough, someone is going to catch on, especially if you're rolling back 80,000 miles. I mean, you can roll back 80,000 miles on the odometer, but you're not going to roll back 80,000 miles of wear. I think even if you replace every bushing on a car, you're going to be able to see and hear 80,000 miles on a car. 
Maybe most people aren't paying attention to those things, so you might get away with it for a little while, but eventually someone's going to catch on, and that's exactly what happened. A customer bought a BMW, of course it would be the BMW owner, with a mileage of 35,000 miles. He later discovered, because he was observant, saw the car, it was suspicious, started looking into it, he found that the car should have had 93,000 miles. So he paid for a 35,000 mile BMW. Um, you know, he paid that amount of money, whatever it was. It doesn't state it in uh, the information. But what he got was a 93,000 mile BMW, regardless of whether it's a two series, a one series, three series, all the way up and down. That is a significant money difference. 35,000 to 93,000. In the one hand, you're still within warranty at 35. On the other hand, what people would say is you're almost at 100,000 miles, which for most consumers that is a no-go, right? Anything over 100,000 miles just it's still definitely growing up, but even still now just sort of seems to be the the threshold for most people after a hundred thousand miles is when you start spending a lot of money on maintenance and you know big costs are coming with the car in terms of big jobs that need to get done so you're gonna need to either learn how to need to learn how to do it or actually do it uh, or go get it done that is um and so this was reported to the authorities back in 2017 we're in 2023 now it took six years for this guy to suffer the consequences of his actions, which really don't even seem like they're that bad. I mean, he's got a two-year sentence, which in itself for $400,000 worth of scam, okay, maybe sure, you can argue that that's enough. But then it was postponed with no real information uh, other than that it was postponed for two years, meaning he doesn't have to do it for another two years. I don't know, maybe the guy's in school or something. I don't know. Um, and he has to do the community service and the rehab. Fine. But I get the feeling he's really never going to serve this sentence. Uh, and therefore, probably not going to learn his lesson. Or who knows? Or maybe maybe this is a first-time offender and that's why this is happening. But it just doesn't seem like if you sell 46 cars with rolled back odometers that's 46 separate crimes maybe even more than that maybe it's a crime to roll it back and then another crime to sell a car knowingly um you know that you knowingly are aware of uh has been rolled back so it could be double the amount of crimes so it almost uh would almost say it incentivizes some people to do this i know that rolling back odometers is probably not really really high on the crime scale and especially in terms of priorities by the authorities but it's starting to become a very serious problem we've talked about it on this podcast multiple times now there's more and more of these articles popping up of you know, you hear it, you hear of it happening with like private sale stuff, but to now have organized car dealers, whether it's, you know, it's, it's used car dealers, not none of the OEMs, but used car dealers who are or a little more organized, supposed to be a little more legit, supposed to be a little more trustworthy now falling to this stuff. And granted, this is all over the world at this point, but 
only recently we heard of something like this happen in the U.S. too. So mm, I don't know. I mean, it's something that we'll probably never, ever completely get rid of. Uh, but I'm curious to see why it's getting worse other than the demand for cars, right? There's a really high demand for used cars right now because of the supply chain shortages that are now being done on purpose. I would say it's not as serious as it was two years ago. Now I think companies have learned that they can make money with not having to carry such high supplies and therefore are, you know, adopting those processes. And now the used car dealerships are winning out and creating more demand for them. And of course, they're going to get more money from lower mileage cars. So they're incentivized to do this. So if you do 46 cars, you sell $400,000 worth of cars, are you willing to do a two-year sentence for that? As far as I know, there was nothing included about him paying that back. I am sure that's going to be handled individually which with each car owner as they figure those things out. So the consequences are probably going to get much worse for this guy. But who knows? So far, it doesn't really seem that bad. But, you know, hopefully it doesn't get any worse. Now let's get into our next headline. Porsche has parked itself firmly in my savings account at this point. I mean, they're, they're, I probably need to set up like a, a Porsche fund separate savings account that something's going to go into because they keep doing really, really cool things. And they just unveiled the Mission X, which is Porsche's latest concept um, in like the hypercar segment. So it's a futuristic two-seater um, and it has these unique Le Mans style doors that open up like in their own way, inspired by an, an older car. Um, it is an electric car, and so they're investing in the future in this regard, but they've set some lofty goals. Now, this concept draws inspiration from the 959, the Carrera GT, and the 918 Spider, and you can see it. It does have a bit of a um, LMP car-ness to it when you look at the silhouette. Um, it actually looks really nice. It's a very, very sleek design. And it's relatively compact. It re measures about 14.75 feet long and 6.5 feet wide. It's a little under 4 feet tall. This is actually very similar in size to an E36 M3 where it's only really wider by about 10 inches. In terms of the length, it's almost spot on with the M3 being at 14.6 feet um, the E36 M3, that is, and the E36 M3, I think, is like 5.8 feet wide, so it's a little, like, 10 inches narrower, uh, but in terms of the height, almost spot on there as well, so it's a very, when you think about those dimensions, it's a very, very small, uh, footprint for a hypercar, but Porsche is not known to make large cars either. Their, their cars tend to be a little more compact, so this, really makes sense. Uh, it has a lightweight glass dome and a really, really strong carbon fiber frame. And its doors open, like I said, when they open up, but they actually move forward and upward at the same time. Uh, so it's sort of like Lamborghini door style uh, mechanisms, but just open up uh, a little differently. Now, uh, the doors are very similar and were inspired by the Porsche 917 race car. Um, that 
had doors in sort of the similar way. So that's what they've designed it around. And the lights have a vertical shape. They're really low to the ground. And when you turn it on, um, they open up like an eye blinking open. Um, so they've invested in some, you know, the, of course, it's a hypercar. It has to act cool and look cool. Uh, but I think what's most impressive is sort of the goals that they've set for themselves, which makes sense for Porsche in terms of some of these goals. They want to be the fastest road legal uh, vehicle around the Nürburgring. Um, and that's what they want to do with the Mission X. Uh, have a power to weight ratio of roughly one horsepower per kilogram or essentially a one for two. If we're looking at pounds, one horsepower per two pounds. So a thousand horsepower per a two thousand pound car, uh, fifteen hundred horsepower uh, compared to a three thousand pound car. So I mean, to put it in perspective, that is pretty wild. Um, they want to have significantly more downforce than the current nine eleven GT three RS, which is a lot of downforce, and they want it to charge roughly twice as fast as a Taycan Turbo S. So they're sort of They've now blended performance goals and electrification goals in terms of what they want to achieve with this car. And, of course, what's going to happen is that they're going to achieve these goals with this car and this concept. But all these uh, you know, milestones that they reach are going to uh, come down, trickle down, to their road legal uh lowest offerings right from the top to bottom they're gonna benefit from these features now i mean we're going to full electrification at this point if you are an old school guy and you're like it's ice only for me i want internal combustion of course this isn't going to be as exciting for you as it would be for other people but i think if we have manufacturers pushing the envelope in the performance space with these cars, it'll be easier for us ICE people to transition into that world. Because, I mean, yeah, you're going to lose some of that feeling, some of that loudness, that noise from the internal combustion engine. But if you have a car that performs just as well, or in this case, better than those cars, I think that makes up the difference a little bit. I mean, for in terms of performance. Now, for the guys that are out there to just show off, I'm sorry, guys. Yeah, I guess, I guess not. I guess you guys are going to have to learn how to show off with electric buzzing sounds they, you know that's i think that's what's gonna happen like it could be i don't know enough i think about electric interference from motors but you know how you can tell the difference from one ice motor to another I, it's very possible that we are going to get in into the same tunes in the electric automotive world where different cars, different brands are going to make different noises. And in the electric car world, that's, you know, hums, you know, the electromagnetic interference. These, we're going to hear chassis a little more now, right? So performance chassis might have their own tone as well. So we might lose the ability to be able to show off by those sounds, which is what is more prevalent now. But it might be that sometime in our lifetime, 40 or 50 years from now, we're going to hear a specific hum coming down the street. And we're going to like, oh, that's the Porsche Mission 5000 that has come out, you know, last year. And it's now, I don't know, 2070, for example. I, 
I think it's a very it's very realistic that that happens. I mean, if we were able to do it with ice engines, think about before internal combustion engines, would you have been able to fathom that you could tell the difference between uh say a a six a BMW six cylinder and a six cylinder from any other brand or a you know from a Nissan six cylinder, right? Um different exhaust notes. I don't. I think you would have probably gone into the same debate that we're going into now about uh, the electric powertrain sounds, um, and it's very realistic. I mean, it's just, it's different technology, but in terms of sound and vibrations, it's the same concept. It's just different components now rubbing together to make whatever that frequency is. That's going to be interesting. That is going to be interesting. We we should probably get ahead of it. It'll probably be easier to measure too if it's if it's electric. You could put each car in its diff different frequency. I mean, it's already done now, I would say, but I think it's probably a little harder to keep it consistent on ICE engines versus keeping a sound consistent with an electric motor. I'll have to dive into that technology to find out. But those are your headlines. We're still covering a little more, but this way a little differently. We're going to get into a new segment, The People Have a Spoken. And as a reminder of what that is, we're breaking down the Instagram polls that you've been replying to each week. It makes sense. I mean, it's, there's a lot of insight in a lot of that. And sometimes I'll throw up a poll. You guys all vote on that poll. And I'm like, I was wrong about this. Um, and a lot of that happened here. So we had, uh, four polls since we last talked on the podcast and we're going to go through each of them. The first one being the voodoo and a quick breakdown for those of you who either weren't on the page or haven't seen this story. The voodoo is a home built car by Brian Booth. Who's an ex GM designer. He did it over 24 years and he built a 181 horsepower, DC electric motor car. This motor is in the rear. It has a 60 mile battery range, so it's not high, but it has a turbine, a Garrett turbine, that spins a pair of ultralight generators that charge the battery while it's driving. So, although it doesn't have a lot of range, it does have technology that helps you get past that, sort of like an alternator, right? A futuristic alternator. Now, it's engineered to run on gasoline, alcohol, diesel, biofuel, and compressed natural gas, which is wild, right? This is like the flex fuels of flex fuels. I don't think there's any technology out there, at least not in the mainstream. Obviously, he has technology in the main, but there's none in the mainstream like OEMs that allows you to run all these different types of fuels. Now, that you know, there's... There's generators on board of this car. There's, you know, different methods of getting um, getting power. So there might not be just one tank that holds all these different fuels. There clearly can't be because we have compressed natural gas that probably has that definitely has to have its own tank. Um, but it's cool that the, he has a flexibility of been, being able to use all these different fuels and therefore minimizes his chance of getting stranded. The car weighs about 3,000 pounds, and it's similar in length and height as a C8 Corvette, so it's a pretty, pretty big car, um, and it has a fiberglass body that was made from a mold. 
The front headrests are from an actual Voodoo aircraft. That's why the car is named uh, a Voodoo. And to describe it to you, I mean, honestly, to me, it looked like a boxier Fisker Karma. Like a bulkier, like a Fisker Karma on steroids that has been lifting for the last two or three years. Not really a really long time. Uh, but yeah, it's like a chunkier version of that car. Um, I really wasn't, I don't know. I really wasn't like super, um, what I would say, um, fond of the car. Uh, yeah, it kind of looked like something that I would have expected come out of like West Coast Customs, you know, no, no hate on them. It's just not my style. Big wheels, uh, chunky body kits. I don't know. It didn't work for me. But then I got curious. I was like, well, um, what would the community, what would you guys think uh, of this car? And I fully accept, uh, expected, you know, to it really be a landslide loss. But surprisingly, it was a it wasn't at all um, the results that I expected. It was very much against what I expected. Um, I it it was a fifty two percent split in favor of the voodoo, and it was a forty uh, actually against the voodoo, and a forty eight percent vote. Um, in favor of the voodoo, which I mean, to me, it's like it's literally split in half. It I I figured I was it was a one hundred percent done deal that this was gonna be like a ninety percent to ten percent, but no, it actually ended up being um that it it was a halfway split on this car. Half of you liked it, half of you didn't like it. I don't know based on what, because I did put information there. So some of you might have based it on the technology, which I completely understand. I think the technology that the car has is impressive. Doing a car that can run on gas, alcohol, diesel, biofuels, and compressed natural gas is pretty cool. Um, a car that it has an electric motor, but also a built-in generator to kind of improve the battery range, because the battery range is low. Um, and it's a one-off car, so I can see how you could vote for it. It was just not my cup of tea in terms of how it looked, but it was for half of you. So that sort of opened up my eyes a little bit. I was like, mm, that's uh, I, I was a little wrong about this one in terms of my assessment. And I think that really goes for anything. But that was that poll. Now let's move into the next one, and the next one is related to a um, essentially... Uh, what we just discussed in terms of Porsche, but this time Ford is involved. And Ford officially joined the FIA GT3 category this week um, with a GT3 car based on the new Mustang Dark Horse that they released. And it's set to start competing globally in 2024. Now, Ford Performance worked with Multimatic and M Sport, which they have worked with uh, in the past with Mustangs. But they worked with them to uh, produce the Mustang GT3 and a Coyote-based 5.4-liter V8 um, that is included in that GT3 car. There are rumors 
that the video that was recently recently released uh, for the Mustang GT3 actually is the road going version that will potentially be released in the future. There are no confirmations by Ford. Honestly, the biggest clue we've gotten so far is that the Ford CEO tweeted, made a tweet that said, is anyone interested in a road legal version of this? And he posted test footage of the Mustang GT3. Uh, other than that, there's really been no other confirmations that this is going to happen. But the rumors are indicating that the one in the video is the road going version uh, because of the tires that are on. It was on Sport Cup 2s. Um, I don't know that that's enough to convince me that this is going to happen, but it'd be pretty, pretty cool if they offered that. And we are going to see the car compete in a variety of different disciplines next year, and it's definitely going to Le Mans. Now, in terms of the poll, I threw it up. I was like, you know, um, I'm going to put it up against the Le Mans Porsche, and that'll let me know, you know where this Mustang lands. In terms of my own opinions, I was definitely still favoring the Porsche. It has the, the pedigree. It's not the first one. So if you're buying one, you're not a bit of a guinea pig in figuring the car out. Um, and, I mean, it's Porsche. I mean, how they, their GT3 game is among the best, if not the best. So it's hard to go against that Porsche. Um, but I decided to do that anyway, uh, and it was very, very interesting in what the reports ended up being because very similarly to the Voodoo and almost exactly uh, like the Voodoo, um, the Porsche GT3 got 52% of the votes and the Ford GT3 got 48% of the votes. Uh, almost the exact same split uh, this time, and that to me was crazy because uh, this 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 poll was initially put up just almost as a joke, right? Kind of like, oh, Mustang has a GT3 now, let's put it up against the Porsche, and I thought the the Porsche was just literally too much of a Goliath to get taken by a Mustang, um, but to my surprise, it was dead even. I mean. The Porsche edges it, but I mean, 52 to 48 percent, it's not that big of a difference. And the, the only difference on this poll is that the DMs were por uh, polarizing uh, with many sharing like shock about even comparing the two cars and others saying that Ford has beaten Porsche, which I don't agree with in any form or passion uh, fashion here. Uh it, it's absolutely true that Porsche has the upper hand here. I mean, Ford is just getting into the game right now. I think it's cool that Ford Performance is expanding into this and that they're creating cooler cars and investing in, in uh, you know more performance options and pushing the envelope in terms of what the Mustang can do. It's going to help them sell more Mustangs, clearly. Um but I don't think it's definitely on the level of Porsche yet. That's not to say that they can't make it there. They're just not there yet. But it is surprising that you guys put, um, you know, the American GT3 against the Porsche GT3 uh, pretty closely. It's sort of up there. So it looks like we have some Mustang fans in the community, which I consider myself a Mustang fan 100%. I'm not hating on the car. I love what the Mustang is doing. 
I love what Ford is doing with it in terms uh I mean, since the GT350, I've been obsessed with the Mustang. Prior to that, they were cool cars that I saw getting better and better as track cars, but it wasn't until the GT350 with the flat plane crank that I was like, "Man, I'm sold. I need to get a car. I need to get into a Mustang." Um it's probably lower on the list clearly, but I mean, I I don't speak from hate is is my point. I definitely give the Porsche GT3 the edge, but the Ford Mustang GT3 is pretty cool, and I'm happy to see Ford investing in, in some new things here because uh, that's awesome. Now, the third poll we posted this week was uh, a poll questioning what your favorite track in Southern California is. Now, I know that not all of you are in Southern California. Some of you are in Brazil, surprisingly. There's a lot of listen listenership in Brazil, which is uh, wild to me, but shout out to Brazil. Um, so this doesn't capture everybody, and in some cases the poll might be skewed because we've got votes from people who maybe have not participated in an event. But I will say that if you have experienced these tracks in a sim game, even Gran Turismo, I would say it counts. Your vote definitely, definitely counts, even if you haven't experienced them all. Now, the tracks on the poll were Big Willow, which is talked about as the scary track by a lot of people. Um, I don't think that's true at all. Yeah, it's the fastest road in the West, but it's uh, it's pretty, I would say it's forgiving. And it, uh, for me, it was a great first track to sort of learn on and get used to and, and experience um, it sort of got rid of a lot of the jitters, you know, in terms of going fast. If you, I know I was hitting 120, you know, on eight, um, by the time I got to auto club and I had to hit 130 on the Roval, it was a little scary, but it had prepared me for it. And then, you know, all the technical aspects of big willow, um, I helped me in other technical aspects of other tracks as well. So that it covers both. And the cover ticks a lot of boxes in terms of a track. So it's clearly my favorite, right? I'm talking about it this way. And the other uh, tracks on the list were Streets of Willow, which some people considered an autocross course. I've heard this from multiple people multiple times. And it sits right next to Big Willow, but is much cheaper to get for a day than Big Willow. So we do see Streets of Willow on calendars more often. Now, the third one is Bun Willow. This is the track that everyone sets their, sets their benchmark at. It's one of the tracks that I have the least seat time in. I need to spend more time there. Um, but it's sort of the, you know, Bun Willow 13 clockwise is the easiest way that I've learned in SoCal, at least, to know, to gauge whether someone is faster than you. Uh, whether it's because everybody's been there or everybody goes there, there's a lot of information out there around all kinds of different cars, even just in YouTube videos, all different kinds of cars running that track and putting times down and posting them on YouTube. So a lot of times when you're comparing whether you're faster than somebody or not, people do use uh, Button Willow 13 clockwise um, to, to gauge that. So it's definitely, I mean, there's Sub 2 Club, which is sort of built around that track. Uh, there's just a big following around Button Willow. So I expected some votes there. And then finally, Chuck Walla, 
which is middle of nowhere but loved by all. Uh, everyone who I've ever talked to about that track, this is kind of what they say. It's like it's in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing there, but it's an awesome track. It flows super well. It's super fun to drive there. But I think because it's so far from a lot of people and it's so far from civilization specifically, it doesn't really rank high on people's lists, although people do seem to love it. Now, in terms of the actual poll results, um, there were some surprising things, but it did fall in line with sort of what, what I expected. Big Willow got 55% of the vote. Streets of Willow got zero, a big goose egg, zero percent of the vote. Button Willow got 41%, and Chuck Walla got 4%. The Streets of Willow getting zero percent um, is what surprised me a lot because it seems to be the track that gets the most events by organizations out here. So I actually naturally just would have expected because there's a lot of people on the track going to the events that have this track um, as the event track that it would actually get some votes, right? I thought it would do favorably and get at least, you know, a, a 25, 30%. Um, but it got zero votes, literally no votes for Streets of Willow, which is very surprising. If you look across all organization calendars, you will almost undoubtedly see Streets of Willow on the calendar. I think the only org that I've run with that doesn't have Streets of Willow was NASA. The NASA calendar didn't have Streets of Willow in it. Whenever we went to Willow, Willow Springs, it was Big Willow, which is probably why I'm you know, more familiar with it and enjoy it a little more. Because um, Streets of Willow wasn't that bad when I went, but I've only done Streets of Willow counterclockwise. Now, it was a very close split um, you know, with Button Willow and Big Willow, uh, which you know makes sense. As I described, Button Willow is a very, very popular track. A lot, a lot of people go to. There is a lot of runoff at Button Willow. You know, it's always dangerous, but it's just, it seems like there's a lot of areas to where you can push a little past your limit and you'll be okay. Um, so Button Willow does give that feeling. So I expected a high vote and it did get, it did get 41% of the vote. Big Willow wins on this one though. And you, whoever voted, you guys are definitely all drivers. If you're favoring Big Willow, uh, my respect goes out to you because I love that track. Um, and Chuck Walla got some votes, but it wasn't very meaningful at 4%. So I know that not a lot of orgs go there, or if they go, it's not something that's on the calendar a lot. It'll be on the calendar maybe once a year or so. Um, so not a lot of people go. So it is a matter of opportunity, I think, with Chuck Walla. I haven't had the chance to go um, either because I just didn't want to go at the end of the year with that particular org or because I was working on the car while these events were going on and they were easy to miss because not a lot of people went, you know, you do want to go enjoy the camaraderie a little bit. Now the last poll that we went in was inspired by a meme that said the average person owns eight cars in their lifetime. This was very relatable because right under that image was uh the puppet that gives is giving the shifty eyes which sort of means like okay yeah they were definitely not the average person and i felt the same way um i did start counting my the cars that i've owned at that point so far in my life so in my life i've done nine cars so i'm not that 
far off the number, but you know, there's still a lot of time. Well, at least I hope there's still a lot of time left for me to own a bunch of different cars and blow that number out of the water. So that got me thinking. I, you know, I had gone through sort of the average garage age when Race FF Pod was on the podcast a few weeks ago, and I learned that a lot of you have big garages or at the very least you guys fill the streets on your blocks with cars and annoy all your neighbors because you know there were like nine car garages 12 car garages seven car garages that people were throwing out with their average age being in their 30s in some cases so i was like okay i'd kind of want to know from you guys like you know what 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 do you aim for are you well past these numbers is this number that you're on track with is this a number that you would want to pursue? And so that's what I threw up on the poll. I threw up, you know, whether you were in line with just a yes. You were in line with the average person owning eight cars in their lifetime. Or you were calling those out as rookie numbers, right? You're gonna, those, those are easy, easy to blow past. You're already at nine like myself. Therefore, you are past that average. Or... Have you not quite made it to eight, but you were planning on making it to eight? I guess I should have left an option that said that, you know, you're probably never going to own a car or you're never going to break that number. But I didn't because I know you're all car people. So the first one, the yes, got 23%. So 23% of you plan on staying in line with that eight car lifetime, which I would say that's respectable. That's a lot of cars. You're going to you're going to you're going to have a lot of fun. Hopefully. They're all fun cars and not all minivans. Uh, Sorry to those of you who own minivans. Now, the second one was the rookie numbers. That was 58% of you. So as I expected, the bulk of you, all of you listening to this podcast now, so 58% of you listening to this podcast have clearly already broken this number because that's how you know, right? I mean, that's what this is indicating. These are rookie numbers. You're going to break well past that. I'm sure there are people in there that only have had one car or maybe zero cars and voted this. But for the most part, you know, we'll let that error go. 58% of you are blowing past this number, which is, is wild to me. But, you know, the average age of our garages is also, you know, in the 20s to 30s. I understand that. You know, we're not we're not all big banks here. Now, it is in my future. That was 19%. So very close to the 23% that is kind of, uh, you know, are, are you the average person in terms of the eight cars? It's very close. It is in my future. So maybe they haven't really quite caught up in terms of those eight cars, but they will be there. So 19% of the total vote, which I thought was pretty cool. I fully expected the 58% on the rookie numbers thing though. Cause yeah, I know you guys, you guys all have a lot of cars, which is awesome. Hopefully you don't have to work on them all the time. Like I do with mine, which I know you are. So we share that, I guess we'll share that bond. Now, those are the polls for this week. I'm going to continue throwing up different polls and covering them on the podcast because I think it's pretty interesting some of the insights that we get out of them. But maybe we won't bring it back every week, but uh, we'll touch on these as the interesting ones pop up. Now, to wrap up the episode, we'll get into our final segment, going back to a moment in history, the time that Dr. Horatio made a $50 gumball bet. 
So Dr. Horatio Nelson Jackson did something amazing 120 years ago. He bet $50 that he could drive across the country in a car, which had never been done before. And, and I mean, there w- cars weren't even like main place like they are now. You would consider this impossible to do at the time. He accomplished this by uh, buying a 20-horsepower ho- Winton touring car. He went on with a mechanic friend and a bulldog that wore racing goggles the whole way and actually achieved this feat, which is crazy, off of a $50 bet. But how did he do it, right? What This is 120 years ago. This was in 1903. America was a completely different place. Teddy Roosevelt was president. Cars, also at the time known as horseless carriages, were still new and not widely accessible. They were mainly enjoyed by rich people, and most Americans had never even seen one. And it wouldn't be—it would be five years before Henry Ford and the Model T came around and made these cars affordable for everybody to own. Right at this time, it was still considered a very much a lavish, rich person expense to own a car, but. He took on the bet anyway, and, and he, he faced, like, really, really serious odds against him on that bet. Uh, he really did because, I mean, the infrastructure in 1903 isn't what it is now. And he was a wealthy man for Vermont, so he had a pretty decent fortune that he earned through marriage. He actually, at the time of the drive, um, was 31 years old and stopped practicing medicine due to an illness. But his financial security was fine because his wife, Bertha, inherited a successful tonic business called Payne's Celery Compound. I think this is part of like the, the uh, uh, snake oil salesman type of stuff. This contained 20% grain alcohol. So this is like a tonic, like a, 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 a like a health compound, sort of how you get like natural medicine now, uh, but it contained twenty percent alcohol. So I think it might not heal your ailment, but it's probably making you feel better, and therefore you're going to keep taking it. But because his wife inherited the successful tonic business, he was fine. I mean, in terms of money. He was good. So he was like, even though it's just a $50 bet, I'm going to try this. I'm going to make this happen. So he embarked on the journey after the bet uh, with some men in a bar in San Francisco. These men believed that the cars were just a passing trend. It was a small little niche project. It isn't going to become this giant, giant wild thing. How wrong they were on that. And claimed that it was impossible to travel from San Francisco to New York in under 90 days. That's when Jackson disagreed completely, bet $50 with them to do it, which is about $3,500 today, and went off, right? He had to figure out what car to take. He was clearly a car enthusiast at the time. So he had some resources in terms of vehicles, but he had to make sure he got the right car. And to meet that challenge, he relied on his mechanic and co-driver, Sewell Crocker. 
who suggested using the Winton car. The Winton Motor Carriage Company in Cleveland was known for producing like sturdy, dependable chassis, vehicles that are able to withstand abuse. So they purchased a slightly used Winton touring car for $3,000 from a local Wells Fargo executive. Of course, Wells Fargo is always involved. This car was a two-cylinder, 20-horsepower car. I mean, the engine was tiny. At the time, Winton had manufactured 850 cars of this model by 1903, um, adding to the total of Winton cars on the road of 33,000 registered cars. So there were still there was a high volume of cars out there. It just wasn't what it is today. And in preparation for his journey, they equipped the vehicle with sleeping bags. They put raincoats in there, tools, a shotgun, and a rifle, of course and as well as a small camera to document their adventure. So there is actual documentation of this that they took themselves. And so on May 23rd, Jackson and Crocker took off. They are headed north from San Francisco. They passed through Oregon. Then they went east through Wyoming, Nebraska, and Chicago along the way. The lack of good roads on their journey, though, just made it very, very challenging, clearly. I mean, there's... They're navigating a lot of dirt roads at this point. I mean, no one had ever gone cross country. I mean, it's other than, you know, in a literally uh, horse pulled buggy like Oregon Trail status. Um, it really hadn't been done. And even then, I mean, you could die of many things, right? Dysentery. That's, that's kind of the or your ferry broke down crossing a river. Of course, you're not going to cross a river in one of these cars. But that just goes to show you don't know what you're going to get into. What road do you even take? There isn't like highways now where we can just GPS this and it'll tell us what highways to take all the way to Maine if we wanted to. It was much different back in 1903. They encountered floods. They ran out of money. They had to repair or replace nearly every part of the Winton on their trip. They even had a car accident. Although it was minor, they did have a car accident on their trip, and they had to um, be in touch with local blacksmiths along the way to help them weld new parts when they needed it, which was often considering how much broke down on this car. Of course, these cars were much simpler machines at the time. It isn't like the cars that you see now. I mean, you probably didn't really even have control arms in this time. It's just a very simple, like, go oversized go-kart chassis, almost. Um, so there is, you know, it. there's a lot of potential for failure, but there aren't a lot of parts to replace, although they did have to go through nearly every part in that car. And they used a block and tackle pulley system to free the car when it got stuck in the mud, which happened a lot, too. I mean, they were navigating different weather cycles, different, I mean, all these different type of things. So, of course, it got stuck in wet mud, and there weren't any roads. Well, there were some roads, but not a lot of roads going cross-country. So, of course, they were going to get into muddy situations. And uh, they communicated with the factory through letters and telegrams. I, it's it's so easy for us to take for granted, um, you know, communication now. Getting across country. Uh, people when, when people do the gumball now, for example, right, they've got like a walkie-talkie system, like CB radio. They've got their phones. They've got, you know, different types of GPS. Uh, I mean, there's like at any given point a five-screen command station 
in these gumball cars when they're doing these rallies across country. These people are doing it by uh, fixing. They're fixing the car. They're traveling across country. They're you know keeping their team updated through letters and telegram, meaning that these are going to be delayed. I don't know what the turnaround is for uh, telegrams, but I can't imagine they were, you know, same day. And if they were same day, it would be hours before they got uh, in touch with somebody that could actually help them. So I think in a lot of ways, they probably had to anticipate these things or just fix down their breakdowns themselves. And um, on the trip, they actually came across a bulldog named Bud and it became their companion. They put they put racing goggles on the dog, much like we see on Instagram all the time now, and took the dog on their trip cross country. Might be the first dog in history to travel cross country in a car. Now, as they were doing this, of course, they started capturing the attention of the media, that which this time is newspapers and magazines. And people started gathering to see the Winton pass by. Um, at times, um, there were early car owners or other Winton owners who would join them on part of the trip, having like uh, a low-key cruises with them across the country, which is pretty cool. You can never do that now with gumballs because they're going like 200 miles an hour. But at the time, these cars were going slow enough. The only goal here was to get there. It wasn't to get there fast. No one had ever done it their time was going to be the benchmark time. Both Packard and Oldsmobile also sent their own teams to attempt their journey once they got wind, they caught wind of Jackson doing this in the Winton, um, which is pretty cool. They're like, we, we're going to need to capitalize this and, and get some cars. But they started much later than Jackson and Crocker did, so they weren't going to beat him in any way. And if you're not the first, you're last. Very, very much so in this situation, I think. Because uh, unless the second person gets there faster, which they, I don't know that they had the ability to even time that. Uh, I mean, maybe they, uh, they saw the time when they left and then the time when they arrive and down to the minute they can see if somebody got there faster. Uh, but unless they were paying attention to that, they weren't really going to make more noise than the first person to ever do it. Obviously, we're not really remembering them. I couldn't even really find their name, the names of the drivers that did this. Um, but it's pretty cool that they started you know, trying to jump into the game. And so they go across country. They battle all these different things. They basically got a completely new car by the time they arrive. They've worked with all kinds of blacksmith and communicating by letters. They should have had some pigeons or something. Who knows? But through all this, they actually do arrive. And the journey caused Jackson to lose 20 pounds. And the trio, don't forget we got the dog, so now it's a trio, finally arrived at 4.30 in the morning on Sunday, July 26th. Jackson, Crocker, and Bud crossed the Harlem River into Manhattan. They drove through the city until they reached the Holland House Hotel on 30th and 5th Avenue. Jackson had completed the journey from San Francisco in 63 days, 12 hours, and 30 minutes, which was well under the 90-day time limit that he had on the bet. This is crazy because it took 63 days and 12 hours. 
Now, right, this is 1903. Fast forward 120 years, let's say 119, because I think the gumball was last year. Somebody did it, and I think it was like 32 hours. We went from 63 days to 32 hours to get across the country. That's crazy. That's the human ingenuity and advancement that we should all be proud of. Technology is is wild. I like when positive things like this happen. Of course, there are ne- the negative sides of technology, i.e. the Terminator, uh, which might be around the corner with this AI stuff. I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm not that paranoid, but who knows? I, I this, But this is wild, right, that we've gone from 63 total days, almost 64 days, to 32 hours, a day and a half to get across the country. But they did it. They were the first to do it. And as a result of driving across country, of course, all three of them became celebrities. They're the first trio of people to make it across the country in a carriage. Right. It it was there weren't even cars yet. It's crazy for someone to even consider taking on this feat at the time when no one's doing it. Like, who does that? And I think it's cool. I think it's cool that in the history of humankind, there's people that are willing to just take chances for the sake of taking chances and figure out that something that was impossible or thought impossible became possible. That's I, I think that's pretty cool. Have a lot of respect for the doctor in that case. And overall, it was great, but it wasn't the cheapest trip. Jackson spent around eight thousand dollars on the trip which would be equivalent to approximately two hundred and seventy six thousand dollars in today's money he didn't even collect his winnings his fifty dollars that he bet with those san francisco dudes i mean at 63 days later it's kind of hard to go collect it plus you're in new york now you have to travel back it's another 63 days um so yeah, he didn't he didn't collect the money. Not that he needed it, you know. I mean, if he's spending eight thousand dollars on this trip, which is a quarter million dollars more than a quarter million dollars now, he was okay. I mean, we knew he was he's married to an heiress of a tonic company that, of course, is doing well. I mean, it, it's making everyone feel good. But it's pretty cool that, you know, someone's willing to take on these crazy, crazy feats. I know it takes someone with a lot of money to do it. I mean, and this was before cars even really became what they are today. I think the first ever race was happening around this time in Europe. Um, it wasn't, you know, motorsport wasn't really here yet. Cars hadn't really advanced that much yet. We were just looking for how far we could get. Uh, in terms of travel uh, with these cars at this point. We weren't looking how fast we could go. We were looking at how far we could go. That that was really it. And as cars became more popular in 1910s and the 1920s, Winton actually faced difficulties in keeping up with the competition. So eventually they stopped making cars and be, they became part of General Motors. Despite all the press that Pro, uh, Jackson gave Winton, they still didn't survive, got rolled into GM. But Jackson, he and Bud, along with his wife, they all settled down in Vermont for a while. That's pretty cool, right? Like, you're in San Francisco, driving your car across country. Then I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to stay in Vermont. You know, I'm just going to kick it for a little while. That's the rich life. Uh, It'd be nice to know what that's like. 
But when World War I broke out, Jackson actually joined the Army even though he was already in his 40s. I didn't even know you could do that. I don't think you could do that anymore, but at the time, I guess you could. So he joined the Army to battle in World War I, and after the war, he actually donated, donated the Winton car to the Smithsonian, which is still there, and you can even see Bud's racing goggles on display there as well. I, I, I hope that I get the opportunity. I don't know. I think I'd have to get very creative. There's still a lot of things that are undiscovered, but it'd be cool to be the first at something like this. Um, it's one thing to be like the fastest on a track. That's cool too. But to be the first person to be remembered for something so wild, this is like Guinness Book of World Records type of stuff. Maybe I need to break an automotive Guinness uh, Book of World Records. That'd be pretty cool. It'd be nice to to be in the history books like Mr. Horatio Jackson here, or Dr. Horatio Jackson, um, and to be immortalized in the Smithsonian, right? That your story's going to live on forever in the Smithsonian, and it's a car story. That's I thought that was super cool. That's what drew me to this story. And PBS actually made a full-length documentary slash video about this where I got all this detail that I 100 million thousand percent um, suggest you go watch when you have some time. Uh, it, I think it's really cool. There's a lot more detail in that that I didn't cover because we just don't have the time to cover it all. Uh, but it, it's it's really, really cool uh, to go check it out. I'll probably link it uh, next week when that, when this or this week when the episode comes up. So look at the Instagram for... Uh, for the link to that video. It's PBS, so of course it's going to be free, but it's really, really cool to get into sort of the journey, the automotive journeys that we were taking before they became these giant, you know, mainstream item that became a million different markets in motorsport and, you know, hobbies and imports and tuning and all this type of stuff. So definitely go check it out if you have the time. I think it's like an hour and 20 minutes or so, hour and 30 minutes or so. Um, so it's no different. I don't know that if it's if it's on Netflix or not. Um, I'll, I'll check out, see where, where it's actually posted because I downloaded it. But I'm sure it's on the PBS website too to find it. But anyway, that is our episode. You can find us at 91octane.com. That is all letters, no numbers. Also, like and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. Follow us on Instagram at 91octane. And if you want to send us any emails, info at 91octane.com. Also, thank you for always supporting. Thank you for all the new people that have come on recently um, and listening to the show. Uh, if there's something that you want to listen to, if there's something that you think I should be covering, let me know. Uh, you know, this is a give and take here. And then also don't forget to check out 91octane.com slash shop for swag that supports the show and keeps us going. There's also coffee on there, and I promise you it's some of the best coffee you've ever tried. So make sure you go check it out. But I think that's it for now. Good night.